So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Cats. A plane lands on a slick tarmac one rainy Paris evening. Reds and blues of the plane's lights flicker in the haze while it taxis to the gate. From the terminal, two men watch the aircraft slow to a halt through large, paned windows. They're wearing fine Italian leather shoes, loose, dark slacks, and Macintosh overcoats. They match, only one's bigger and muscle-bound. He's the one with a fedora that doesn't quite fit. The other is lithe and athletic, with a bushy mustache atop a weary face. He wears a flat cap, and his posture says he's much stronger than his build suggests. The year is 1957, and these two men wait, watching, while passengers and crew alight. Most passengers get little more than a fleeting look as they pass, unless they appear to be a man traveling alone. In that case, they get a little more attention. The two observers are looking for defining characteristics, a unique gait, a certain carriage, the moves and gestures of someone who's lived a particularly cruel life. There's one final guy at the end of the line. Blue suit, dark red tie, the uniform of an airline steward. He's polished with closely cropped hair and a clean shave. He's also young, early 20s, and he moves with a practiced indifference to the world's machinations. It's not so much of a walk as it is a slide across the cheap carpeting of the terminal. That's true. He's a little hunched over, shoulders rolled, and he pays almost no attention to his surroundings. Recognition strikes in unison, but the observers wait a beat. They let their guy with the blue suit and the dark red tie clear the gate. Then they follow. They trail their mark with a trained precision. Never too close, never too far. They're not worried, not stressed. No high blood pressure here. They might as well be French businessmen returning from London, Berlin, or Rome. When their mark stops for the restroom, the man with the fedora makes a fake phone call at the payphone. You never know he wasn't really on the phone. And all the while, he's watching for any trouble. The one in the cap leafs through a newspaper stand, but keeps the restroom in the corner of his eye. As soon as the mark moves on, so do the men. In the parking garage, their guy hops into his car and pulls away, just like the two men in their own black vehicle. The two don't talk, and they never look away from the car they're following. Before the plane arrived, they'd removed one of the brake lights from the Mark's car. In the rain, the soft glow of the remaining brake light shines like a little homing beacon. It's easy to trail, so they can stay four or five cars behind. The passenger pulls a pistol from his shoulder holster. 
He puts a round in the chamber and then reholsters the weapon. It's not time yet, but he's getting ready. They glide from the airport to the suburbs into the hills of Montmartre. There, the mark takes a narrow, winding side street that leads to the top of a hill. The two men let him park, watching from their car as he disappears into the cafe. That's when the two men leave their car and stand under a gas street lamp. They can see as the man inside lights a cigarette and speaks with a waiter. A glass of red wine arrives at his table, and that's when the two men head inside. They blow right past the maitre d' and through the waiters in crowded room, shouts and complaints rising in their wake. A hand falls on the mark's shoulder. It's the guy in the fedora, and his other hand's gripping the pistol in his coat. The other man slides into the seat next to their target. Jean-Pierre Guillaume, he asks. Son of Dominica, Guillaume? It's him. Although Jean-Pierre says everyone calls him Polo, he takes a long, exhausted drag on his cigarette and rubs his face. He's an amalgamation of physical contradictions. He's youthful, but weathered. There's an energy in his muscles, but he seems exhausted. He has the rigid frame of a soldier, which he once was, by the way. And yet, his posture slumps in a way that makes that hard to believe. The man's mother has put a price on the guy's head. She wants him dead. His own mother. Jean-Pierre takes a healthy gulp from his wine glass and shrugs. None of this is news to him. Jean-Pierre turns and eyes both men up and down. They're either police or they've come to finish the job. Let's just make this quick, he tells them. For you, we could be both, the man in the fedora says. The other stands and sweeps a hand from right to left. After you. Jean-Pierre has no choice but to go. Jean-Pierre Guillaume, the only child of Domenica Guillaume, finds himself the target of his mother's unwavering wrath. It's a place many have been before, and none have walked away without at least some kind of scar. To some, death would have been far more desirable than the torture she subjected them to. It's 1957. And Dominica Guillaume is one of the most powerful people in all of Europe. She's connected to the artistic and cultural elite, the ruling politicians of France, and the ultra-nationalist, far-right extremists. She also controls mining interests in North Africa that single-handedly account for over 10% of France's international trade at the time. And she owns an art collection, one full of Cézannes, Picassos, Renoirs, Matisses, and Modiglianis. Today, a collection like that would be well worth over a billion dollars, if, to be honest, a price could be placed on it at all. Basically, she's so powerful, so rich, and so well-connected with the European elite that she's untouchable. Dominica Guillaume has all the riches in the world, and despite this, she can think of only one thing. Her son must die. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Scoundrel might not be the right word for Dominica Guillaume. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've probably noticed that there's often a sympathetic or, at the very least, understandable reason why our subjects break bad. They may have done some terrible, downright immoral things, 
But there's more often than not a very human reason that leads them to do what they do. Economic precarity, love for family, grave injustice. Often, there's something in each scoundrel story that could lead any of us to think that maybe we're all just a few bad breaks away from becoming scoundrels ourselves. That kernel of relatability gets obscured in the story of Dominica Guillaume. This is the story of one woman's monomaniacal pursuit of power, riches, and glory. Driven by a deep shame that never fades, Domenica Guillaume spends life always chasing something more, something a little bigger than what she already has. There never seems to be an end, either. No point where she might be satisfied. Affairs, art, money, power, fame, even revenge. It does not matter what. If she wants it, Domenica Guillaume pursues it until she has it. And there's not really anything that can stop her. Fraud, lies, human trafficking, murder. Nothing is off limits for her. Let's start in Milau, France, 1920. In this small provincial city in the country's south, 22-year-old Juliette Lacoste burns every little scrap, every remnant, and every keepsake of her youth. She stands before a grand stone fireplace, where the flames burn hot and high, tearing apart family portraits, photographs, and loving notes from her parents. She watches as it all turns to ash. Juliette Lacaze, who in a few years will become Domenica Guillaume, is in her childhood home where she was born two decades earlier, on May 19, 1898. It's a large, ornate mansion on a healthy plot of land, a place where her parents had hosted grand parties, The halls and rooms had been filled with the hustle and bustle of the old upper classes. Entertaining, drinking, arguing art and politics. Those evening parties used to delight young Juliet as she snuck out of bed and hid behind door frames to take in all the glamour. But now, the rooms are empty and hollow, haunted by the ghosts of a financial boon that one day simply vanished. After a series of bad deals, bad investments, and plain old bad luck, Juliet's father had lost all the family's wealth. The Lacaze family had been reduced to nothing, and tomorrow, her parents will abandon this spacious home for a more affordable but cramped apartment. Her parents, that is, but not Juliet. She refuses to join them. She's ashamed, deeply, deeply ashamed. Just the previous week, her father exchanged his fine Italian suits those smooth, deep blues of the wealthy elite for the coarse brown wools of the working class. He's no longer a man of influence. He's been reduced, to Juliet's great embarrassment, to a clerk at a small office. Her mother, too, has left behind her well-manicured gowns for simpler dresses and understated pieces more becoming of the people. Juliet's parents have accepted their downfall with a pained, reserved humility, because... They're determined to go on and rebuild everything, no matter how long it takes. But Juliet, she doesn't want to become one of the people. So she burns everything, anything that might link her to her parents, even though that means destroying her past entirely. It's the only way she can become something, someone entirely new. All record of Juliet Lacaze of Malau, girl humbled by her father's poor decisions, burns in the flames. And from the ash rises something new. Someone who will succeed. Yes, in a few short years, this young woman, 
shamed by her family's fall from grace, will become the notorious Domenica Guillaume. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. They don't make things like they used to. Normally, that's a bad thing. Well, with our new sheets from Bowl & Branch, that's now a very, very good thing. Bowl & Branch sheets get better with age, just like my cast iron skillet. Or solid wood furniture. After every wash, they're even softer than before, with all the same buttery, breathable comfort we've always wanted. It's because Bull & Branch gives you thread quality, and trust me, there's a difference. So much so that we replaced all our sheets in our home with Bull & Branch signature hemmed sheets. I wanted bedding that was just as good after going through the wash. So when these came out even better, honestly, I was amazed. I like that it's not a struggle to put them on the bed, even with a deep mattress. Also, the colors are so smooth, so inviting, and the top sheet falls on you like a feather. I sleep so well, actually better, on these sheets. There's nothing like 100% cotton. And this is 100% organic cotton. It feels luxurious, and I'm excited to have these for years to come. I recommend the Shore color. That's our favorite. But you've got nine neutral colors to choose from. And I say, go with the signature hemmed sheets. They're the best seller for a reason. Great for every season with over 10,000 stellar reviews, including five stars from us. And best of all, Bull & Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code SCOUNDREL at bowlandbranch.com. That's Bull & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code SCOUNDREL. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. She leaves home with her brother, Jean, to seek what they have lost. Affluence, notoriety, and power. In the 1920s, there's only one place for young people to invent, or in some cases, reinvent themselves. Paris. This is where Ernest Hemingway becomes Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald becomes Fitzgerald, and Pablo Picasso becomes Picasso. It's a city of crude living, smoke-filled cafes, jazz, and the explosive momentum of the world's greatest artists. Paris of the 1920s is also a place of romance and innovation, and to the likes of someone like Juliette Lacaze, a place to live freely and anonymously, forever unencumbered by the misfortunes of the past. However, Juliette's rise to the top is less than meteoric. What she thought would be a quick sprint turns out to be a slow crawl. Of course, her brother Jean does all right. He gets a job at Shell Oil and lives a comfortable middle-class life. Juliette, on the other hand, bounces between a series of spurts and false starts. For a while, it's selling gloves at a high-end department store. Next, she works the hat check at an exclusive club. But there's never much money, and she lives in relative squalor in a series of small rooms in shoddy tenement buildings. Where are the elite circles to which she feels entitled? Juliet remains on the fringes. But here's the thing. Instead of wallowing or giving up, Juliet seems energized. Her desire and willpower grow stronger. One Saturday night... 
Juliet leans on the counter of the hat chick. She's bored with the monotony of it all. Ticket for hat, ticket for hat, on and on and on. Then it's hours of waiting for the drunk revelers to leave at the night's end. They'll come stumbling out with slurred speech, feet tired from dancing. Some will have even forgotten where they are after all the drinks they've downed. With her chin resting on both palms, Juliet waits and listens to the muffled tones of vibrant music slipping through the doors to the dance hall. A sharp snare and low bass push an alto saxophone high into the air, just out of reach. A couple approaches the hat check. They're fashionably late, well-dressed, and linked arm-in-arm, one in a tuxedo, the other in a form-fitting gown. Both treat Juliet with a frigid distance she once gave her own servants, a treatment more piercing than any insult. Neither makes eye contact as the man tosses his hat onto the counter. Instead, they wrinkle their noses at the music notes seeping through the door, as if to say, how dare the band start playing before they arrive? Juliet hands a ticket to the man, noting how he wipes his hand on his trousers after putting it away. Heaven forbid he leave any trace of the working class that might have contaminated him in the exchange. She watches the couple go and catches a glimpse of the raucous party inside the club between the closing doors in their wake. A crescendo from inside peters out all too soon. And that's the moment. Juliet has had enough. She packs up her things and abandons her post at the hat check. She never returns to her job and she never works again. She heads south to the Riviera, to Nice, to soak in the sun and the views, and to rethink her plans. All around her, people come and go in expensive cars, flanked by bustling servants. And she knows, as she's always known, that her place is here, with the elite, not as someone working for them. One day, a man approaches her on the beach. He's a little older, a little rounder, with a silly mustache. But Juliet finds him attractive, in his own way. His name is Paul Guillaume, and his palms are sweaty from his nerves. Juliet agrees to a drink with him later that evening. Drinks that turn into drinks again on another night, and then weekends together, and then full weeks in each other's company. If these two don't fall deeply in love, they at least find a sort of comradeship neither has ever experienced before. See, Juliet and Paul, they're not so different. Like Juliet, Paul has distanced himself from his family. Embarrassed by an impoverished youth and a lowly uniformed bank messenger for a father, Paul moved to Paris at 17 to make it big. That's where he pretended to study law to keep his family happy, while in fact, he worked as a mechanic at a luxury automobile garage. Unlike Juliet, however, Paul is already on an astronomical rise to riches and influence when they meet. Paul's garage imports rubber for tires directly from Africa. And he's noticed that some of these shipments include tribal decorations and artifacts. West African art is all the rage in Paris during the 1920s. And so Paul, not one to pass up on an opportunity, orders more and more art along with the rubber shipments. And now, many of the city's aspirational artists want what Paul has in his garage. But they're starving artists, and they have no cash. So Paul strikes them a deal. West African art, in exchange for the Parisian artist's original pieces. Paul accumulates enough pieces to fill a small gallery with original art from Picasso, Braca, Derain, Matisse, Flaminque. Because he's well-connected to the city's rich, thanks to his luxury garage, with a robust clientele 
a healthy collection of art from rising stars, and his keen sense of marketing and promotion, Paul becomes one of the most influential and important art collectors and dealers in Paris. Legitimately, he does have a great eye for emerging talent. He does. He's the first to display Giorgio de Chirico and Amadeo Modigliani. At Pablo Picasso's suggestion, too. Paul Guillaume might not be a household name in France, but he is deeply connected. And when he and Juliet begin their relationship, he's already on his way to becoming quite rich. Like, very, very rich. The two are married in 1925. Paul in an expensive tuxedo, and Juliet, now 27, in a flowing white gown, custom-made in Paris. On the day of their wedding, Juliet Lacaze changes her name to Domenica Guillaume. Her transformation and rise back to the top now complete, Domenica enters Parisian high society as an alluring woman of mystery. No one knows much about her background. She's aloof in conversation, and she embraces the mystique to craft the legend of Domenica Guillaume. It seems as though Domenica and Paul were made for each other, and they both have that same unquenchable thirst for money and power. Enough is just not in their vocabulary. There's always more, more art, more money, more connections, more fame. They spend years living lives of splendor, cocktail parties and exclusive dinners with the ruling elite of Europe. There are gallery openings and glowing media coverage about Paris's new power couple, Along the way, Paul and Dominica each have too many affairs to count, but they seem to tolerate each other's indiscretions, as long as they both get what they want. Dominica's affairs are mostly with clients. Happy clients mean more business, and more business means more money. And so Paul looks the other way. Whereas Paul maintains a long-term affair with Jeannie Castell, another art dealer. And she brings their galleries a steady stream of new artists and new clients. But Domenica has one thing Paul does not, a temper with a dark side. And with each passing year, her fuse seems to burn a little shorter. Even the faintest perception of a slight sends her down a labyrinthine path of revenge. Domenica and Paul cycle through housekeepers and servants. She berates them, even hits a few, for the smallest indiscretions. She's known to fire personnel for a simple vase being one centimeter out of place or a speck of dust left on the windowsill. Paul? He notices. He's aghast, too, but never says a word. They're both getting what they want, so why mess with a winning formula? But history comes for us all, and no good fortune lasts forever. 1929. Domenica, now 31, watches as the stock market crashes sending the world into an economic tailspin. Millions lose their livelihoods and fall into squalor. Oh, but not the Guillaumes. They're fine. They've invested wisely and are still sitting on a treasure trove of assets that ensure generational wealth. It's the glamour and the parties that dry up for a time. And that's the problem. In a massive recession, gallery openings and soirees are no longer fashionable. And so the couple spends more time alone and out of the spotlight. Domenica blames Paul. You should have planned for this, she berates him one night. We should have been prepared. This whole situation is unacceptable. After that, the Guillaumes move to a luxurious apartment that overlooks the Bois de Boulogne, the beautiful botanical gardens and largest park in Paris. It's a cavernous, multi-level apartment with large windows that look directly to the park's ponds. It doesn't help and their relationship fractures. Paul and Dominica grow distant, 
Paul drinks a lot and becomes reclusive, spending many of his days sipping a steady stream of brandy while watching the ducks swim in the pond from his study. Some days he doesn't even get dressed. He stands there in slippers and robes, snifter in hand, and wonders what brought him here and why. Domenica, on the other hand, bounces from affair to affair throughout Paris. Rumors begin circulating, linking her with the Prime Minister of France. One evening, at a party in their apartment, Paul catches Domenica canoodling with Jean Walter in the pantry. Walter is a powerful businessman, an architect, who designed their building and who, it just so happens, lives in the unit above. He has three kids and a wife who is not so tolerant of extramarital activities. The situation being exactly what it looks like, Domenica turns to Paul with an icy stare. Really? Can he honestly be that surprised? But the surprise ends up being all Domenica's. Because Paul has had enough at last. A line has been crossed. In the past, he kept their affairs distant and never spoke of them. But now, a lover has come into his home. The one bought with his success. And for him, that's too much. When the guests are finally gone, Paul wastes no time. Full of brandy, he confronts Domenica. You've crossed the line this time. You've gone too far. Oh, don't act like you haven't had your own little playthings. And don't take the moral high ground with me because you've traded love for brandy. Are you kidding me? Shut your mouth. You're a small, pathetic man, Paul. You're nobody without me. Look around you. Look at this apartment. Do you see this painting? Do you see that one? Look. Look look at where you're standing right now. And tell me. Whose money got you here? That's right. Mine. I can't believe I sold my soul to be with your ungrateful lip. You chose this life. So don't chastise me for your choices. That's on you. You know, I was happiest without you. Those days working in that garage, dreaming of what might be. Now look at us. What might be has become what is. And now, I want it gone. I've had enough. (laughs) You never leave me. All the drink in the world wouldn't give you a spine. You you have no idea about anything. I, on the other hand, know exactly what you want, Dominica. You want my money, so you never have to be that pathetic little girl in Malau again. So this is what's going to happen. If you want anything when I'm gone, you are going to have my baby. Paul. Otherwise, it all goes to charity. You wouldn't. Domenica stares hard. But she has to admit, this time feels different. She has a gut feeling that Paul might really mean it. The Guillaumes spend that night and every night that follows in separate rooms. They stay married, but very much out of love. All the while, Paul's ultimatum looms over every interaction. Eventually, Domenica resigns herself to giving Paul what he wants. It seems like her only option for keeping the life she's carefully built. But the thing is, Domenica cannot have children. Rumors will later circulate that she had her tubes tied before the marriage, so as to hoard any potential inheritance. Domenica will never confirm or deny these rumors, and it turns out she doesn't have to. One morning... She saunters into the kitchen, where Paul sits nursing a hangover with a cup of coffee, and announces, So, I'm pregnant. It is yours. And, uh, that's all we need to say. Dominica is, in fact, very much not pregnant. But 
she does have a plan. She does. It's quite simple, too. A pillow. Or a series of pillows. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. With their marriage now devoid of all romance and intimacy, Paul and Dominica spend very little time together, in any sense of the word. Every month or two, Dominica adds to a growing mass of pillows tucked beneath her clothes to give the illusion of a progressing baby bump. She also stops drinking and announces to everyone that she's expecting. She goes to regular checkups. And never invites Paul to join her at the doctor. And always returns home with a report that the baby is doing just fine. The whole thing sounds absurd. How could Paul not know? Maybe he does. Maybe. He could have found the charade entertaining. There's no way for us to know for sure. All we do know is that he never says anything, never gives any indication that he knows, and the ruse continues. All the while, Paul retreats further and further into drinking in his study, where he daydreams of a life without Domenica, and a garage filled with cars. October 1st, 1934. Paul sits alone at the kitchen counter, just after dawn. He's feverish. There's a pain in the right side of his abdomen. That's something like he's never felt before. It's sharp, burning, piercing. He's also nauseous and dizzy, and not in the hungover sort of way he's come to know. Domenica, now 36, enters the kitchen. The pillow, playing the part of baby beneath her robe, slips a bit, and she readjusts. The baby is due in a matter of days, which is good because she is running out of pillows. Domenica looks at Paul, but you look awful. You know, you should really reconsider the whole drinking thing. <coughs> I'm not well, Paul says. <laughs> I could have told you that. No, I, I need help. Seriously. So go get some. Domenica watches, and she can tell. Something really is wrong. Paul has the couple's chauffeur drive him to the nearest hospital, where he's rushed to the ICU. Doctors don't know what's wrong with Paul, but they can tell he's quite sick and doesn't have much time. He's alone, too, because Domenica does not go to the hospital, nor does she visit at any point during his stay. Because she has things to do. Her time is running short as well. She can't risk losing the wealth Paul has threatened to give away. So it's time for the rest of her plan to unfold. And when you're as rich as the Guillaumes, everything is possible for a price. Over the years, Dominica has forged some connections with the peripheries of the underworld. She's asked around in recent months and knows that a child can be bought for the right price. With Paul's health in jeopardy, Domenica knows it's time to act. She dresses down, trading in flashy colors for coarse fabrics and grays and black. 
What she's about to do isn't something you want to stand out doing. One look in the mirror brings back a flood of repressed emotion. It's the same feeling she had on that day she burned everything. Shame. But Domenica doesn't have time for that. Not today. And not after all she's done to reinvent herself. So, off she goes to her appointment. First, it's a ride to the opposite side of the city. Elegant buildings give way to crumbling brick and broken windows. Without thinking, Domenica sinks lower in the car and clutches her purse a little tighter. She arrives at a dilapidated structure on a street she doesn't know. In that building's basement, a sweaty man with a wispy mustache and dirty fingernails sells Dominica Guillaume a baby boy. The child is a foundling whose real parentage will never be known. And the price is 5,000 French francs, or over $10,000 in today's money. The man assures her that no one will ever know. And with that, Domenica's son is born. Jean-Pierre Guillaume, Polo for short. The baby begins to cry as Domenica walks away. Her feet slow at first, then gaining speed. Buying a baby? Did she really just buy a child? It's absurd, but is it over the line? One look at her surroundings is all it takes. This place represents a life she never wants to know again. Her new life requires money, and that currently requires having a baby. So, moving that line and buying a baby, it has to be done. Paul Guillaume never sees his wife again. He never meets his supposed son, and he dies alone from a burst appendix. Doctors tried all they could, up to and including keeping their patient comfortable as best they could until the end. Paul's final days are spent in excruciating pain, beneath the weight of regret and shame. Not for what he used to be, but for who he allowed himself to become. One day, Dominica sits in her lawyer's office. She wears the black of a mourning widow and plays the part well for the public eye. Inside, however, she's likely relieved to see her husband gone. And today, she's about to hear some very good news. It's quite simple, the lawyer tells her. Everything is yours. All of it? Domenica nearly stammers. When the lawyer nods, a wave of relief washes over her. She's done it. She has everything. Of course, she pretends to mourn a little longer, but not much. Soon, Domenica rekindles her affair with married man Jean Walter, the powerful businessman and architect, and continues making the rounds through elite Parisian circles. The year is 1936. Dominica, now 38, watches as Jean Walter's riches explode exponentially. He was already quite rich when they met. Way back in 1925, a business partner was deep in debt to Walter. That individual was unable to pay, so in lieu of cash, Walter accepted mining rights to a large portion of land in eastern Morocco. Turns out, Walter had studied a bit of geology in his youth, and he recognized the sparkles of Galena in the rocks when he inspected the land for the first time. Galena signals the presence of lead and zinc, so Walter invested money and started mining the land. In 1936, he starts the Zaija Mining Corporation with his eldest son, Jacques, and they quickly discover that their company now owns the most valuable lead deposit in all of North Africa. Now, there's art collector Rich, and then there's 10% of France's international trade, Rich. Walter, one morning, finds himself the latter. 
and Domenica decides to never let him go. Then in 1941, Walter's wife dies. He's been in an affair with Domenica for years now, and with his new freedom, he's tired of all the secrecy. He demands marriage and fidelity from Domenica. She, of course, has no interest in marriage or monogamy, but she can also see the vast wealth Walter accumulates every day. So she agrees. The two are married that very year. But what of Polo, Jean-Pierre Guillaume? This whole time, he's been little more than a means to an end for Domenica. But ticket to riches, not love. It takes little time for Domenica to consign the child to a team of nannies and turn away to focus on her own life. Polo is five when her mother marries Jean Walter. He's never felt love, and he's never had a friend. For a fleeting moment, he feels the warmth of paternal and brotherly love. Jean Walter and son Jacques take an immediate liking to young Polo and give him what he's never had. They take him for strolls in the park. They feed the ducks together by the ponds. They take him for ice cream and to football matches where Polo learns the songs and chants of the local team and recites them with all of his heart. And Domenica does not like any of this. To her, it's a complete waste. So she banishes Polo to the family's villa in the south of France. It means it means the child doesn't see much of Jean or Jacques Walter ever again. When he does come to Paris, Domenica refuses him a room and a bed. She forces him to sleep on a mattress under the dining table. Or, if she happens to be entertaining, in a bathtub in the servants' quarters. When he's old enough, Polo joins the French army, where he becomes a paratrooper and finds himself stationed in Algeria. Domenica works her connections to Polo's commanding officer. Test his mettle, she says to the commander. See how brave that boy actually is. Spare him nothing. The officer obliges, and Polo sees combat. A lot of it. He runs point on missions throughout Algiers. And his unit, more than any other, serves on the front lines. And still, Polo excels. Well, mostly. He serves with distinction and is even commended for his bravery. He's a good soldier on the field. But in the quieter moments, life remains difficult for Polo. His childhood isolation makes him difficult to get along with at times, and he often quarrels with fellow soldiers. A few arguments blow up into fistfights, and he's even caught stealing from them at one point. I want to know all of it, Dominica says to the commanding officer in another phone call. Every little detail. She obsessively tracks all of Polo's indiscretions, no matter how minor, and keeps a catalog that she hopes will allow her to legally disinherit him. In 1955, Domenica, now 57, begins another affair. This time, her romance is with Dr. Maurice Lacour, a man as selfish and cold-hearted as Domenica herself. He's a fascist sympathizer with connections to the violent right-wing extremist group, the Cagouls. He calls himself a homeopath, psychiatrist, acupuncturist, hypnoanalyst, and, in his words, the sole guardian of the secrets of Siberian shamanism. But it's all a front. Lacour has no real credentials. He's a glorified drug supplier to the wealthy of Paris. That's how Domenica meets him. In the 50s, she begins to suffer from rheumatoid arthritis. Lacour medicates her, they begin an affair, and Lacour moves in with Domenica and Jean Walter at her insistence. Walter hates Lacour, and he hates the affair. Walter resisted the Nazis in the war, and he cannot abide by Lacour's fascist past. 
I'd willingly throw him out the window if I could, Walter tells his friends. But of course he doesn't. He tolerates the presence of his wife's lover because there's something Jean fears even more. Domenica. Now, Domenica's brother, Jean Lacaz, is in a relationship with Margaret Biddle, the heir to the Newmont Mining Corporation. It's one of the largest lead and zinc miners in the United States. Anyway, Margaret is everything that Domenica is not. She's kind, she's generous, she's warm and gregarious, and above all, she's philanthropic. She has all the money she could ever need, and unlike Domenica, she thinks she might have too much and gives away plenty. Domenica and Margaret strike up an unlikely friendship. Together, they dress immaculately. In Balenciaga gowns and Cartier jewelry, they are photographed by the most fashionable magazines at the most fashionable parties in Paris. Biddle, too, is Jean Walter's business partner. In a lean year, Walter Zeija Mining Corporation sold 49% of its company shares to Biddle's Newmont Mining Corporation. June 8th, 1956. Dominica Guillaume, Maurice Lacour, Jean Lacasse, and Margaret Biddle go on a double date to the gala at the opera thrown in honor of the king and queen of Greece. Dominica and Margaret wear Balenciaga gowns, Dominica in black and Margaret in red. They drink champagne, they eat caviar, they schmooze with dignitaries, artists, and royals. Oh, darling, I'm so sorry, Margaret says to Jean deep into the night that appears to have no end. I'm spent, I must go home. Jean and Dominica are not ready to conclude the evening's festivities, so LeCour offers to escort Margaret home. Margaret declines the offer. It's nice, but not necessary. But LeCour insists and won't let it go. So Margaret gives in. They say goodnight and leave while Dominica and Jean watch their two lovers head out. The siblings toast with fresh glasses of champagne, likely in awe of how far they each have come. Jean asks if Dominica ever thinks of their mother and father. Without hesitation, Domenica answers, never. No one hears from Margaret Biddle after that night. Days pass. Silence. The gregarious socialite has not made the rounds, has missed appointments and lunches and dinners, something she would never do. Police are sent to her apartment, where they find her dead. The autopsy reveals she slipped into a coma and died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All eyes turn to the last to see her alive, Dr. Maurice LaCour. The circumstances are too suspicious, and the detectives want to investigate further, but their supervisor prohibits them from doing so. Just like that, no charges are filed in the death of Margaret Biddle, and all record of the investigation goes quietly away. June 11th, 1957. Jean Walter third wheels on Domenica and LaCour's romantic day in the countryside. They drive from the Walters' villa to a small lake where Jean Walter plans to fish and Domenica and LaCour plan to sun themselves. It's a smooth, luxurious ride. And for a moment, Jean Walter forgets the embarrassing circumstances of his life. He rolls down the window and lets the wind ruffle his hair. He watches the vibrant greens of the rolling hills turn to a blurred collage of summer landscapes as the car speeds along. The trio stops at a small village for lunch. The parking lot for the restaurant is full, so they park on the other side of the busy highway. Dominica and LaCour cross with no problem, holding hands while they do. Jean Walter pauses to scan a newsstand. He wants one last moment of peace before lunch. A glossy financial magazine catches his eye. He pays the cashier and then turns around and heads for the restaurant. At the precise moment his foot steps from the shoulder to the lane, 
He looks down to the magazine and opens it. He never stood a chance. There's no time for the driver to break, no time to honk. Before Jean Walter's second step is hit, the car strikes him in the pelvis, shattering it immediately, and he falls to the pavement with all of his weight on his head. The cashier rushes to help. He checks for a pulse. There's one there, but it's faint. The driver jumps from the car. He's distraught. He's blubbering with tears, wheezing and short of breath. In seconds, a small crowd gathers around the scene and gawks at Jean Walter. He's writhing in pain, coughing up blood. Through the crowd come Domenica and LaCour. LaCour gathers Jean Walter in his arms and drags him to the car. Ambulance, someone shouts. Call an ambulance. But Domenica and LaCour don't call anyone. They don't say a word. Instead, they shove Jean Walter in the back of the car and peel off. Jean Walter dies in the car on the way to the hospital, alone in the back seat with a shattered pelvis, the taste of iron in his mouth, watching as his wife whispers into the ear of her lover. Days later, Dominica, LaCour, and Jean Lacaz push past the sole security guard at the Zaisia Mining Corporation, headquartered in Paris. The guard protests, but they're already on the elevators, on the way up to Jean Walter's office before he knows it. On the top floor of the building, in Jean's cultivated mahogany office, they lock themselves in, and they don't emerge for days. When they do, it's with a packet full of letters they claim to have been written by Jean Walter himself. In retrospect, it's obvious everything was forged. But there's one wrinkle. Jean Walter and Domenica Guillaume have eerily similar handwriting. In the past, Domenica had forged checks and letters in Walter's name. He knew, and often just looked the other way. And so, even though everyone knows it to be true, there's no way to prove the forgery in 1957. The result? Jean Walter's children, including his beloved Jacques, are removed from the Zaija Mining Corporation Board of Directors, and they're replaced by LaCour. With Margaret Biddle also dead, LaCour and Domenica now exert unchecked influence over the mining company. It seems Domenica has also become the sole beneficiary of Jean Walter's will. Just like that, she's gone from rich to otherworldly rich. She's now worth approximately $4.1 billion in today's money. Well, she's done it. After years of manipulation, conniving, and fortuitous luck, Domenica Guillaume, once the young, shamed Juliette Lacaz of Provincial Malau, has reached the mountaintop. Out of sheer willpower, she's destroyed her past and reinvented herself as one of the most powerful and wealthy people in Europe. She's made no compromises, shown no mercy, and as a reward for her pursuit, she now has all she ever desired, endless riches. But there's still one loose end. There's one person left who could get a piece of Domenica's wealth, one Jean-Pierre Guillaume, little polo. Dominica can't let that happen. Right, and she won't let it. She and LaCour know exactly what comes next. LaCour works his connections to land a meeting with a mysterious hitman known as the Archduke. He's a lithe guy, athletic and strong, and wears a flat cap above a bushy mustache. Like Dominica, he's in his 50s, just more weathered and weary. He had fought bravely in the French resistance against the Nazis, and under his clothes are deep scars from memories past. The Archduke has grown tired of violence and crime. 
but he's recently purchased a seafood restaurant on the coast with an expensive mortgage. And so he's willing to listen. Perhaps one more hit before he retires to a quiet life in the kitchen. Jean-Pierre is described as a threat to national security. His death will help preserve the French Empire. Really, this last job is for the country. They agree on a fee of 13 million francs, around $1.4 million in today's money. Jean-Pierre Guillaume will die. And if Domenica gets her way, it'll be harsh, too. But something doesn't sit right with the Archduke. Domenica and Lacour's story is too clean, too perfectly suited for the hitman's sentiments and values. Sure, his mark might be difficult and mercurial, but the Archduke has asked around, and it turns out Jean-Pierre fought valiantly for his beloved France. There are whispers, too, of Lacour's extremism and connections to the Cagouls, the fascist traitors who welcomed German invaders with open arms in 1940. Plus, all of France knows of the mysterious circumstances of Jean Walter's will. Yeah, the Archduke sees through it all. So, when the Archduke and his associates follow Jean-Pierre into the café on that rainy Paris evening at the top of today's episode, they had already decided not to kill him. Jean-Pierre follows the two men into a hotel. And when they open the doors to the suite, a familiar face rises from a leather chair and approaches. It's the one friend Jean-Pierre has ever known. Can you guess who it is? That's right. Jacques Walter, his beloved stepbrother. He embraces Jean-Pierre, who is in complete shock and relief. The Archduke and Jacques Walter explain everything. Jean-Pierre is devastated, but not surprised. And he agrees that his mother must be stopped. In the meantime, he will gladly hide out at the Archduke's house in the countryside. The next morning, the Archduke hands a pistol and an identification card, both of which belong to Jean-Pierre, to Lacour. It's proof. The job is done. Naturally, Lacour wants to know details. Strangled, then dumped in the Seine with pockets of rocks. It's done. Lacour hands him an envelope stuffed with cash, and they go their separate ways. The Archduke knows he's dealing with dangerous people more so than he's dealt with before. So he develops a dead man's switch, or an insurance policy, should things go wrong, and hands it over to his attorney. It's an envelope full of documents that outline everything that just went down. Documents that implicate Domenica, Lacour, and Jean Lacaz in the conspiracy to kill Jean-Pierre. The Archduke tells his attorney to only open the envelope should he die in the near future. Well, that worries the attorney. And so he reads the documents, even though the Archduke remains very much alive. The documents are horrifying, and the lawyer passes along the information to prosecutors, and they begin to investigate, quietly. In the countryside, Jean-Pierre cannot hide forever, and somehow Domenica and Lacour eventually learn that he's still alive. They flee to Morocco to recalibrate, deciding to focus their efforts on the legal justification for revoking Jean-Pierre's adoption and, thus his legal standing for any inheritance. What they don't know is that police have tapped the phones of Jean Lacaz and his attorney, and they learn of this newest conspiracy live as it unfolds. Soon, the French papers catch wind of the story, and what they dub the Lacaz Affair catches fire around the globe. The story dominates French media for weeks, and the scandal is covered as far away as Texas and Virginia, and it all comes out. Dominica's true identity and shame, the faked pregnancy, 
purchase of Jean-Pierre, the attempt by Dominica and Lacour to have Jean-Pierre murdered and then legally disinherited. Jean Lacause, Dominica's brother, goes down first, with the story's pervasive presence in the media, as well as a talk given by the Archduke to a sold-out theater skewering Dominica and Lacour, the couple makes one last attempt to defame Jean-Pierre. There are rumors that Jean-Pierre's girlfriend is a sex worker. Dominica sends her brother to Jean-Pierre's girlfriend with 30,000 francs and an offer to go to the press with the story that Jean-Pierre is a deadbeat who lives off her earnings. But of course, the police catch Jean Lacaze discussing the conspiracy with his lawyer on a phone tap. He's promptly arrested and sent to jail after a swift trial. While the courts continue to investigate, Dominica and Lacour fly back to Paris from Morocco. They give a bizarre, unhinged press conference in which they lay blame on Jean-Pierre Guillaume. He's the villain, they insist. These supposed conspiracies to murder him and then disinherit him, Dominica and Lacour claim, were cooked up by Jean-Pierre himself when they refused his blackmail offers. The press doesn't buy it, nor does the public. And more importantly, the courts do not believe them either. The investigation concludes, and Dr. Maurice Lacour gets six months in prison for conspiracy to commit murder. Domenica Guillaume, however, receives no charges and does no time. Even with all the evidence against her, she walks. She's untouchable. The courts want to charge her, but she is saved at the last minute. While the investigation winds down, Domenica's friend, André Mauro, becomes the Minister of Culture for France. He brokers a deal. The investigation will go away. No further charges will be pursued. And, in return, Dominica will donate 147 paintings to the Louvre Museum. She obliges and hands over the Picassos, Bracas, Derans, Matisses, and Flaminks. The museum builds a special wing to house the paintings. In fact, they're still on display there today. After that, the scandal just kind of deflates. The next big story breaks, and everyone moves on from the Lacaze affair. Millions of visitors see Domenica's art collection in the Louvre every year, with no idea of how the paintings arrived there. Polo goes on to work for a time as a journalist and writer in Paris. Eventually, he marries an American woman and moves to North Carolina, where he farms on a peaceful plot of land and takes up flying as a hobby. All the while, Domenica keeps her wealth and remains in Paris. Her latter years, however, are spent in immense arthritic pain. And she becomes addicted to cocaine and opium, spending much of her time with her driver, going around Paris to buy drugs. One day, Polo receives a message on his North Carolina farm. His mother is lonely and guilt-ridden. At last, she wants to repair their relationship. It's a big decision, but Polo flies to Paris. He goes all the way to her apartment, where the curtains are drawn tight and the air is musty. Domenica looks ghost-like. She's translucent and skeletal, having wasted away under the weight of her addiction. When Polo arrives, she doesn't speak. Instead, she hands him a set of documents. He reads them carefully. They renounce his adoption and his right to an inheritance, and should he sign them, he would lose any connection to his mother. He hands them back to Domenica without his signature. Despite everything, he has room in his heart to love her, should she ever feel the same. With that, he's gone, never to see his mother again. She dies in 1977, at the age of 79. Domenica Guillaume was once asked what made her impervious to consequences. We are like the pharaohs, she responded. 
Domenica does resemble one Egyptian pharaoh in particular, Ozymandias, the ruler for whom nothing was ever enough, and today is best remembered for the broken, decayed, and lonely fragment of a monument that bears his name. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Percy Bashelli once wrote of Ozymandias's idol to his pride. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. If you're ever in the Louvre, look upon the works brought there by Dominica Guillaume in despair. Know the shame, the loneliness, and the hatred behind that collection. And know those paintings are only there because everything never became enough for poor Dominica Guillaume. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy L. Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 